In order to call yourself pro-life, must you also be opposed to capital punishment in order to be consistent with your pro-life values? Well, we'll take up that question and a bit more in this edition of Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. Who are you? Who are so wise? Critics of the pro-life movement often accuse supporters of hypocrisy. Uh, they argue that pro-lifers are inconsistent in their views of the sanctity of human life. For example, critics chide pro-lifers for saying little or nothing in opposition to the death penalty. Relatively newer and more strenuous criticisms have been added over the last few years that include the pro-life silence on the U.S. immigration policies, NARAL or the National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League, says pro-lifers think nothing of policies that, quote, rip children out of loving parents' arms at the border with no plans of reuniting them and then putting them in cages. Pro-lifers are also accused of, quote, denying affordable health care to people with pre-existing conditions, of blocking access to HIV testing and treatment across the globe, and the execution of women who have had abortions. But some critics uh, take the arguments further by saying that to be truly pro-life, pro-lifers should prove it by working for climate justice and gender identity equality and a host of other social issues. Well, I think the first thing to admit is that all of these concerns are in front of almost all Americans almost all the time. Some issues may weigh more than others in your thinking by virtue of the news cycles or political seasons or just simply because you have an issue that is the most important to you. Now, if you're not familiar with the theory of intersectionality, you've probably been wondering uh, what abortion might have to do with gender identity equi uh, equality. Well, intersectionality is the theory that multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, classism, and any other form of discrimination, combine and overlap or intersect in the life experiences of marginalized uh, people groups. Uh, these categories overlap with one another in mutually fundamental ways. They are not viewed as being distinct issues, but interconnected issues with the influence that they have in other areas. The theory was developed over 30 years ago by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, a civil rights advocate and a leading scholar of critical race theory. Ms. Crenshaw is today a full-time professor at the University of California Los Angeles School of Law and Columbia Law School. She is also the founder of Columbia Law School's Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies and the African American Policy Forum. In reading about these ideologies that have come to our national attention, I've looked for the foundational thesis that holds these theories together. Intersectionality makes it clear that on every level, its fundamental worldview, or the way that it looks at our current society and political system, can only be truly understood through the lens of the abuse of power by the more powerful over the less powerful. Intersectionality examines the improper use of power in ethnic groups, institutions like the home, including marriage and parenting, and in government and in the church. The basic idea is that privileged people and institutions hold on to their power by keeping the marginalized powerless. Tim Keller, pastor and theologian, wrote recently, 
quote, the categories where this ideology is found are in race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity. If you are white, male, straight, cisgender, then you have the highest amount of power. If you are none of these at all, then you are the most marginalized and oppressed. More importantly, each category toward the powerless end of the spectrum has a greater moral authority and a greater ability to see the way things truly are. Only powerlessness and oppression bring the moral high ground and true knowledge. Therefore, those with more privilege must not enter into the debate. They have no right or ability to advise the oppressed, blinded as they are by their social location. They simply must give up their power." End quote. The single thing that holds all of intersectionality ideology together is summed up in that one word, power. Who has it and who uses it? And this brings us back to my original question. Must a pro-lifer also adopt a pro-life ethic about uh, opposition to capital punishment? To be consistent, must pro-life people position themselves for human rights, for gender equality, for transgender reassignment therapies and surgeries, for embryonic stem cell research, for physician-assisted suicide and genetic engineering in order to be truly pro-life? Well, the answer is yes, but with some biblical qualifications. The Christian worldview has a foundation, too, on which we view all of these matters. If intersectionality is built on the foundation of the use and the abuse of power to keep certain groups of people marginalized, Christianity is built on a very different worldview of the image of God in human beings. Every person has the unmistakable thumbprint of God on him or her as a gift known as the imago dei, the image of God in humanity. Regardless of skin color, socioeconomic status, education, or any other distinction, all share in God's image, and therefore all are due respect and dignity. A secular society like ours pays little or no attention to this Christian doctrine, but Christians should, and not just pay attention to it, but celebrate it, and most of all, obey the implications of it, especially where the points of conflict arise in our culture. The Christian embrace of the sanctity of human life comes from the pages of Scripture right at the beginning in the Old Testament and runs all the way through to the New Testament. The creation story of Genesis 1, we are told in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and, the, and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And just a few chapters later, after Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, they began having children of their own, actually sharing something of God's image at work in themselves. The Bible tells us when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived to 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Theologians debate about the meaning of the image of God, but I think it's possible for us to agree that at least the image of God in human beings means that we have the capacity for intimate relationships with one another and with God himself, our most important relationship. We share with God a measure of his created power. 
unlike God, we can't make something out of nothing, but like God, we can take uh, uh, materials that are already in existence from the earth and make something out of them. Uh, with it, we've made computers and iPhones, houses and rockets that travel to the, uh, to the moon and to Mars. We grow crops for food. We raise lambs for wool and cattle for food. Humans have the capacity to create culture. We create musical instruments, paintings and plays, literature and movies. As part of our image-bearing responsibility, we are to be stewards of the environment. Like God, humans have the ability to think and to reason and to feel deeply all sorts of emotions. Humans, unlike animals, have an innate sense of eternity and our accountability to God for what we do with the gift of life that he's, he's given to us. This biblical doctrine is the foundation for all ethical considerations related to all of the issues that I mentioned earlier. Because of the image of God, all human beings have intrinsic value and not merely functional value. And what I mean by that is your value doesn't arise from what you can produce or provide or in any other way accomplish for another person. Our value comes from the dignity that God bestowed on us as his image bearers. David marveled at this in Psalm, in Psalm 8 where he said, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Writing for Ligonier Ministries, John Davis wrote, quote, human beings have inestimable value in the sight of God, irrespective of gender, race, state of health, dependency, or social and economic utility, but simply and profoundly because human beings, among all of God's creatures, have been designed and created for the purpose of enjoying a personal relationship through Jesus Christ with the creator of the universe. Now, there are two places in Scripture where the ethical implications of the image of God are brought into a very pointed focus. In Genesis 9-6, God says to Noah, in the reestablishment of the creation covenant, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. There it is again. Therefore, the murder of another human being is an attack on the majesty of God who created human beings to be his representatives on earth. This is the foundation on which our laws for capital punishment stand. It isn't uh, the right of any one human being to take the life of another human being uh, by, by the act of murder. All human life belongs to God, and he reserves the right to himself as the giver of life to put the beginning and the end dates on our tombstone. The other reference may surprise you. It's from James 3. James writes, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Well, James shows us the hypocrisy of praising God while lashing out at others with curses on their heads. All forms of verbal or physical abuse of another person are contrary to the inherent dignity of that person created in God's image. These verbal attacks are an attack on God's glory just as much as the willful murder of another image bearer. So my friends, remember that the next time you use your words to cut and harm and, and to show your contempt for another person, you may well be saying these things about God himself. 
Now, if all people bear the image of God, what happened? Because we sure don't look like God's representatives. Well, biblical teaching makes clear that all of humanity has fallen into captivity and sin and is alienated from God. With the fall, the image of God underwent a tragic distortion and the whole human faculty is shot through with corruption. We're born this way. More to the point, even conceived this way. David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, meaning that his nature from the moment of his conception was a sinful nature. However, the image of God remains even in its corrupted and disordered form. And just imagine looking into a mirror that's cracked and has shards of glass and missing and, and you look into it and you see the image but it doesn't look quite right. Well, that's what we are as human beings with God's image distorted but still deserving honor. If we get the Imago Dei with all of its implications wrong, we run the risk of minimizing the crisis that is the abortion of hundreds of thousands of God's image bearers every year in the United States. If the image of God is given as a gift at conception, abortion is an attack on the majesty of God in the womb. The Bible regulates various situations when one person is killed by another. The unintentional death of someone was considered manslaughter and not punishable by death. For example, in Exodus 21, the legal situation here is outlined. If you're out chopping wood and your ax head flies off and it hits someone in the head and that person dies, you're not liable for the death penalty. There was a punishment for this carelessness that amounted to something like house arrest. Uh, the, the person who was guilty of manslaughter had to take refuge in one of six uh, refuge cities throughout Israel and await a trial for his case. If he was found not guilty of intentional murder, then he had to return to that city of refuge and remain there for as long as the high priest remained alive. Only after the high priest's death could that person re-enter society. This view of unintentional death uh, is what we would call manslaughter and was a way to preserve the life of the one who had, the, uh, had committed the accident while bringing a sense of justice to the family of the person who died. Unintended deaths carried a measure of accountability, just as they do today. However, if someone intentionally murdered another person, uh, we'd call that first-degree murder with intent to kill, it was considered a capital offense punishable by the forfeiture of his own life. And this was based on Genesis 9-6 and Exodus 21. But there is just one place where God's law kept capital punishment for an accidental death, and that was the death of a baby in the womb. The Bible presents a very different scenario to make its point. Imagine two men are engaged in a violent fight, something like a dispute that erupts into you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And say the pregnant wife of one of the men uh, goes out and tries to intervene to stop the fight, but in the course of the violence, she is injured in some way so that the baby is injured and that baby dies in her womb. Under these circumstances, capital punishment was the sentence. You'll find that in Exodus 21, 22 to 26. As theologian Wayne Grudem says, this says that God placed a higher premium on protecting the life of the unborn child and the pregnant mother more than the life of anybody else in Israelite society. 
If accidentally causing the death of an unborn child is taken so seriously by God, certainly intentionally causing that death would be as well. Yes, Christians should seriously consider how to work for the flourishing of others with regard to the important issues of race relations, immigration laws, and all the rest. But isn't our first responsibility to the most vulnerable people of any society who can't defend themselves? And wouldn't that be the unborn in the womb? From the moment of conception, an unborn baby has the DNA that makes her God's image bearer. There is no minute before that baby is born that he is less than any other human being who is one year old, 10 years old, or 100 years old. That person is God's image bearer and deserves the dignity of that place in God's world. Belief in the sanctity of human life starts right here at this flashpoint. All claims to more important matters of human flourishing mean very little if the life of the baby in the womb is overlooked or reduced to second or third place. All other virtue claims simply ring hollow. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for joining me and thanks to Steve Dion who, who makes Wisdom 828 possible to help us to fulfill our mission of stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You'll be of good cheer.